welcome to Rich in Life, a podcast for anyone looking to be entertained while picking up a few tips on life, luxury, and resilience. And now your host, Rich Irani. Hi, I'm Rich Irani, and you're listening to Rich in Life. Today's guest is very special to me. He's a longtime friend, I would say for almost, I would say 20 years. People may know him from The Biggest Loser, author of four books. He's a TV personality and a heart attack survivor. If you haven't guessed it by now, it is Bob Harper. We had so much to cover that we're launching it in two parts. There are so many layers to him most people don't know. Aside from his knowledge on personal training, health and dieting, he's very funny. I always say going out with him for a night is like taking a mini vacation. He's smart, a very talented photographer. He loves to cook and can spot a trend from a mile away. In this episode, he shares with us his humble and dysfunctional upbringing and how he got the gig on The Biggest Loser, only to become a pioneer on one of the most successful shows about losing weight to date. I would say some of our most memorable times was tearing up New York City the restaurants, bars, shopping, and of course, working out. We've been to each other's homes, we've spent holidays together and confided over personal issues. We share anecdotes about celebrities such as Gwyneth Paltrow, Hilary Swank, Andy Cohen, and more. Be sure to tune in next week when we discuss his heart attack, his love for fashion, more anecdotes, and how he deals with the fear of another heart attack. Let's get started. Okay, so here we are with one of my very long time and very close friends, Bob Harper. He's one of the funniest people I know. I have to say, Bob, you make me laugh out loud. That was one of the first things that attracted me to you in this friendship. And you're extremely smart, I have to say, and you're a pioneer on building a career as America's favorite trainer. I mean, to me, that's amazing. And also you do, you look amazing for 72 years old. <laughs> Thank no, honestly, you. You, you really look great. You're ageless. It's, it's, it's maddening how ageless you are. First of all, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing good. And uh, speaking of ageless, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like you look exactly the same since I met you. You're, uh, you know, I was thinking about when you and I first met. Do you remember that? Uh, what was that bar called? It was XL. In, thank you. It was in Chelsea. It was in <laughs> XL. And uh, you remember I was with Melissa Etheridge. And uh, her girlfriend then became wife, then became Amulyn Michaels. That's her. And I remember uh, I had just gone through a breakup and I saw you and um, Brad over off to the side and we just, we just became friends. Like, don't you feel like we became friends like immediately? It was immediate. And here I have this story. So I'm going to let people in. I want the audience to know how we became friends and how we met. So we met at XL. It was a very swanky bar um, downtown in New York. I had walked in with Brad and Brian, his brother. Brian was in town for just a couple of days from London, and he was actually leaving the next day. The minute we walked into the club, before we even got settled, this perky blonde with spiky hair and a lot of makeup, gorgeous girl, walks right up to Brad and says, do you have a boyfriend? He was so confused. He pointed to me, and he's like, yeah. And I, I said, why? She's like, oh, I wanted to introduce him to my friend. I said, well, what about him? That's his identical twin brother. 
She looks up at Brian. She pulls him down because she was smaller. She messes up his hair and she drags him. Brian, how cute is he? He starts laughing, you know, being from Ohio. He goes along with it and he starts letting her push him. And we follow. We follow him right up to you guys. All we see are the two backs. She taps you on the shoulder and you turn around, sipping your drink, like, uh-huh. what's up? And that was it from there. And then a few minutes later, Melissa Etheridge turns around and says, guys, what can I get you to drink? Of course, I knew who she was. But being that most of the crowd was gay, they all knew Tammy Lynn Michaels from the television show Popular. So that oh. to me was really funny. Do you remember how that night ended? You said you guys left and said, we're going back to the hotel. Why don't you meet us there? You were staying at the Soho Grand Hotel. And we said, yeah, sure, whatever. It was pretty much really up to Brian because we felt there was a spark and it was whatever Brian wanted to do. So of course, 10, 15 minutes into it, we're sipping, we're looking around. I think it was me that said, are we ready? And Brian's like, yeah, I'll go. We all got up. We drove down to the Soho Grand. And when we got upstairs, before we can hit the top step, you guys started yelling, yay! You handed us all the drinks we had ordered. You remembered all three of our drinks and gave it to us. And it was a whirlwind of a week, Bob. We hit it off so great that even mm-hmm. when Brian went back to London the next day, and you guys liked each other, you guys had like, you know, had this thing, but he yep, went we back did. to London. Yeah, but you still invited us every single night. I mean, we tore up the city. We went to Lotus one night when Melissa kept inviting more and more people, Alan Cummings and all these other people. We went to the Bowery Bar, Beige Night. And then at the end of the trip, you guys invited us to come to L.A. for Melissa's 50th birthday at the Buffalo Club. Wow. And and I remember that. I remember um, us all being at the Buffalo Club. I mean, that was a really fun party. And the fact that, like, that's what you've always been so good at, you and Bradley, like, just being able to rally. I like people that rally and just can just go with the flow. You know, I know that if, if it works into your schedule, whatever it's going to be, you're going to say, sure, I'll go, whatever, let's do it. And we did. And I have to say, you were the most gracious host. You picked us up from the hotel, even though we had a car, you shuffled us around all over the place. I mean, you really were an incredible host. And I always appreciated that. But had I known that I'd have to do the same thing when you come back to New York, I don't know, (laughs) I might have taken a cab. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, I'm here in New York City. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just such an interesting time, right? I'm just trying to uh, get the new lay of the land. You know, I just I, I texted you a picture of me getting my my second vaccination shot the other day, which by the way, it hit me the next day, big time. Like I was so exhausted. I felt like there was like, just like bricks on me. Um, but but to answer your, uh, to, to answer your question, I feel like, uh, you know, we've been in such like this uncertainty for such a long time. And it's just like trying to get to that place of, I think we're all looking for whatever normal is to us. And uh, I feel like that's where, you know, I've been this past year of being in quarantine. I was in New York for most of the time. And as you know, I mean, or you, you were out of the city for the biggest part, right? Like for most of the part. Yeah. The minute the kids schools closed, we left and we came down to the beach. Yeah. And we were here. Like I, if, let me tell you, 
I am such a New Yorker now because I've gone through all that. Like no one could ever not call me a New Yorker after enduring uh, COVID during during all that time. But yeah, I think it's it's an interesting time for so many people. Like for me, I know that I'm turning 56 this year and kind of figuring out what the next chapter of my life looks like. And, you know, I've worked very, very hard for a very long time. You don't know what life is like now. You don't know what to expect. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what life uh, life is going to look like. So I have to tell you, Bob, I I, I hear what you're saying about the uncertainty. And I think we're both, you know, one of the things also that uh, how we hit it off is we're very similar in a lot of ways. Our birthdays are literally a year apart, almost to the day. We're both very loyal people. And I think we're both very intuitive people. So I get what you're saying about the uncertainty. And I think that weighs a lot on my shoulders. And I think it weighs a lot on your shoulders. I think what's incredible for you is that you've come such a long way since we met. And where you are today, I mean, I'm really very proud of you. And I, I don't know if you hear it from a lot of people. And you probably don't hear it from me because I prefer to make fun of you most of the time. But <laughs> I actually am very proud of you and can't believe you've um, gotten to achieve what you've done. And you're a self-made man. See, this is the part that is interesting to me is that you're a self-made person. You had nothing handed to you. You didn't come here. You came from Tennessee. All right, so I need to get background from you, even though I know most of it. But if I don't get it, Bob, I'm going to get my ass handed to me by a few people, especially my sister, Rachel, who you met. She's like, she remember, Rachel? She was the one that came over to you on Madison Avenue during the launch opening and said to you, I'm one of the only women you'll ever meet that's comfortable with my body. (laughs) Do you remember that? Yeah, that's Rachel. I love so, that. so I need to get some background. I know you're from um, Tennessee. You're from Nashville. Yeah. yeah, I grew up on a cattle farm in Tennessee. And, you know, I lived a life that was very uh, simple, you know, living out in a very rural area, like the street that I lived on didn't have a name. That's how, that's how country I was. I always knew that not that there was more for me because as I'm older now and I look back at what my life used to look like, there was a simplicity there that uh, you know I, I'm thankful for. I grew up in a time where during summer breaks, for instance, where you know people would go on summer vacations and uh, you know camp uh, kids camps and things like that. I had to get up every morning at five o'clock and work on a farm every single day. So that gave me such a a strong work ethic. So when I decided that it was time for me to leave, which I was that person in 1983, that's when I graduated high school, I left my uh, hometown immediately. I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to see what this world is, is it, it has to offer me. And the closest city that I had near me was uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And so met this girl. Uh, she and I were best friends. She was a hairdresser with an asymmetrical haircut. We would like sit around and listen to, you know, Depeche Mode and The Cure all the time. And like, this was my life. And um, it wasn't until I found fitness that I really decided, well, there's something I can do with that because I didn't go to college. I didn't, I I had a high school education. That's all I had. 
I really liked the fitness world that I found myself in and I started learning how to teach these classes and- Okay, but pause. Pause a second. I want to take two steps before that. Okay. Did you come from a loving home? I know your parents didn't stay together. Were they together? Did you feel like you had came from a loving home? Was it a very loving, nurturing home? Oh no, my house was not a loving house uh, at all. I, uh, my parents were very, uh, my dad was in the military, met my mother uh, in Germany. And uh, my mother, you know, first generation German, you know, she was a very strict woman. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of love in, um, in my house. And I think that when my parents divorced, when I was in the six, I was just coming out of the sixth grade going into junior high school, it was like my family just kind of scattered. You know, my, my dad had a new wife and kids and my mom was you know, looking for what her life was going to uh, was going to be, and my two older sisters they had already moved out, and so I was just kind of like this this kid that was kind of stuck in all of the um, the debris of divorce. And you were like a vagabond, if I remember the story. You were like a vagabond. I mean, pretty much. Like I uh, I did not have a very good childhood. It was it was um, it was tough. It, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of love. And I remember the biggest thing that I got out of that was I always knew that I was gay. And um, I realized at such an early age that I was going to need to have my own back because there wasn't nobody around that was going to have my back for me. And if I was going to hate being gay, uh, and not be able to, for myself, classify who I was. Like I was going to have a real problem here, and uh, and I, I don't, and I don't know how I got enlightened so quickly for myself. But once I realized, okay, I am gay. This is who I am, and if if you have a problem with it, then that's your problem. It can't be mine, and. I look back at that and I've talked about that with other people before that taught me a lot. And it was like the beginning, the beginning of self-respect and self-love that I, I have to this day. And um, I'm real, I'm real grateful for that, but you know, it was, it was tough. Well, you were lucky to be so smart, so young, because I mean, people have struggled into their twenties and even thirties uh, dealing with being gay. Yeah. Do I remember correctly that your dad um, chose kind of his wife's family over you? Did you kind of have to leave your home because your dad took a priority over not his own children, but his new wife's children and kind of sent you off on your own at 17? You're exactly right. My, uh, it turned out like this, this is such a, uh, <laughs> because this breaks my heart, you know, throughout our friendship. I mean, not that I really ever get mad at you for anything, but whenever I really feel like I need to be a little bit more gentle or, you know, a little more there for you is this comes into my mind. And this always makes me feel like I need to take a step back and remember, because I find that what happens in childhood with your family really leaves a scar forever. And that, that story stayed with me. So I'm oh, sorry to interrupt. Oh, you're exactly right. But my, it turned out that my dad had a whole family in another town 
whilst he was still married to my mother. And uh, it was this woman that he was uh, involved with and she had three kids from a previous marriage. And, you know, in my family, it was, you know, the mom and dad with three kids. So literally he was cre recreating uh, a family just like his own, but with someone that wasn't biological to him. And that was the family that he chose. And, you know, that will really fuck you up. <laughs> and I've had to go, I've had to go through a lot of therapy because, you know, you, you, you have this thing in the back of your head of like, okay, well, uh, how can you love me if my parents didn't, or if they did love me, they had a really weird way of showing it. And, um, and so that was, that was really tough. And uh, it took, it took a long time to, you know, and I use the phrase, get over it. I don't think that you ever really get over it. It's, it's a part of me. It's a part of who I am. Uh, but it doesn't define me the way that it used to. Perfect. Perfectly said. So at 17, you kind of got sent away. Where did you go when you left Tennessee? Did you stay in Tennessee and just live somewhere else? Yeah, when um, when I first left, uh, when I uh, when I graduated from high school, uh, I had some friends in the in the town that uh, I was living with. Her name was Sloan. Uh, she was so much fun, but she was the one that really helped me. She, I was with her in her apartment, and you know we were inseparable. And finally, she just looked at me and she was like, "What are you going to do with your life? You have got to get out of this town." And this is a true story. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I, I mean, I had no possessions. I had like, you know, enough for a, a, a little suitcase. Uh, and it was a Monday, just a random day. And she got me in her car and she drove me to Nashville and she, because she knew that I had my friend Diane with the asymmetrical haircut. And she was like, you're going to go live with her. You're, you're, you're getting out of this town and you're getting out today. And I remember just like freaking out. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, don't I need to plan for this? What am I going to do? And she gave me the, you know, she gave me a couple hundred dollars to start. And, um, you know, she was a really, she was a really good friend. It's like a, it's like a Tennessee Williams play when, you know, you, uh, the line is I've always relied upon the kindness of strangers. And it's like these people that have um, been helpful to me in my life as I progressed, because, you know, I didn't have the family unit. I didn't have the family bond of someone to be my um, my cushion. You know, it's like I've got these friends that are like, oh, my God, if I get into a, a bind, I can call my mom or I can call, you know, my, my sister or whoever the case may be. I'm like, yeah, I never had anything like that. If I was going to fall, bitch, I was going to fall on the ground and have to pick myself back up. <laughs> right. Are you still in touch with Sloan? No, I've, uh, it, it was so many years ago and we kept in contact um, for a while, but then we completely lost contact. Okay, so you moved to uh, Nashville. That's when I moved to and, Nashville. And that's when you moved to Nashville and you're not even a country singer. Are you a cool kid? <laughs> Are you, uh, you know, like, did you have a tattoo yet by then at 17? When did you get your first tattoo? I'm curious. I think I got my, I think I got my first tattoo when I was around... 21 and I okay. remember it being on my shoulder and I was so excited about it because this is when I was like you know you asked me uh you know what kind of kid I was back then I was a real like um you know I loved 
I love Morrissey. I love The Cure. I love like goth music. It was like, that was my thing. I got introduced to starting to wear all black. And then, you know, like, and I was poor Richie. And I mean, I was always that kid that was going to save up whatever money he had. And if I would choose to eat that day or uh, like, I, I'd be like, I could miss lunch every day for a week, save this amount and I can get that, you know, black turtleneck. You know, it's like, that's how my right. mind has always been. <laughs> but you also went through a wild stage with drugs as well, didn't you? I mean, I had a, I mean, it was the eighties, right? I mean, right. we had, there was always, there was always a party to go to. There was always um, fun to be had. And like, I was never gonna uh, miss out on any of the fun. <laughs> but you were never out of control. Oh no. I mean, like I, I think that I was in a really rebellious time, but it wasn't um, like, that wasn't my outlet to, uh, to, to rebel. Like I've always been um, very much, I don't know if loner is the word, but I guess that's the only one um, that comes to mind. And so the way that I would rebel is I would keep people at a distance from me all the time. People that would want to get close to me, like, uh, it was, it was really hard for me. It was really hard to let people get close to me. Are you still that way now? I know you're not that way with me. We had an immediate friendship that really could never disappear. It could never be broken, even if we don't see each other or speak to each other. And which we'll get to later because, you know, we're going to talk about your mom dying, my mom uh -huh. dying. I mean, there's so much history between us. Um, but do you think still you're that way with people? You, you do have a wall up, maybe even more so now since you became so successful and popular? I feel like I went through, uh, I've gone through periods of, uh, of that off and on, but uh, one thing that, and you've touched upon this, I'm a very loyal person like you are, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the death with, uh, with the friends uh, that I have close to me because they're really important because I never had that. I never had, like I consider, I consider you to be family because this I've I've had to redefine what family is to me. My friends like Christy or Anthony or Nicole, people like that have been in my life for so many years. Like these are the people that I plan on being around with for the rest of my life. And for people that don't know, Anthony is his um, boyfriend for, I would say about seven years. I don't know how long it's been. Yeah, yeah. We've it's been about seven years, Anthony. Yep. And one of the sweetest guys who really, really knows how to take care of you. And also Nicole has been with you, I don't know, since the very beginning of, I think the biggest loser. She's your assistant, your friend and like family and a lovely girl. I, I always love her. She made us feel so great when we came to stay with you. In, in LA, in your house. Yeah. Yeah, but okay, really so, so yeah, so these people you learned how to make family. And I, I agree, I, I see what you mean by that because you have to determine who family is gonna be to you, if, especially if you don't have it. And I think that's what's interesting about us and we talk about, because you and I are very similar. I know the years that I've um, been with you, like I know that your actual family is somebody, a, a unit that is extremely important to you and you value i've i've gone through the i've seen the toughest times that you've gone through and the best of times that you've gone through with family and i know that family is super important for you and i've always wondered about your thoughts with me having to kind of 
redefine what family is since it's not blood in my mind. You know, it's like blood isn't family in my life as blood is with you. Okay, so now that's a great question. And it's funny that you should ask that. And I kind of had a feeling you were going to ask that. And, I, and it's funny because in, I'm intuitive and I felt like you've always wondered that about me. And one of the stories that comes to mind is when my mom passed away, you had called me up and you were in LA and you had to go somewhere for business for The Biggest Loser. And you said, you want to come by and see me. And I said, you know, it's okay. I don't want you to go out of, out of your way. You don't have to. And you said, no, 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 I'm coming, you know, unless you really don't want me to come, but I'm coming and I'd love to come see you. And I remember I must have said something like, don't come. I was so hopped up on all kinds of medication. I don't know why I said that at the time, but every once in a while I think about it and I kind of regret maybe the way I answered you. And looking back, yes, I have a huge family that I feel a responsibility for, but what I do appreciate about getting older is that the few people that have been in my life since I was young, like you, my friend Isaac Franco, and a few others, I will always be there for, even if I don't speak to you for a while, even if I don't see you for a while. And I don't think I maybe would have had that mentality when I was younger because I had my own depression I was going through. I felt isolated. I felt alone. I didn't come out when you as early as you did. I came out late. I came out in an orthodox community where it wasn't really accepted. So I had so many of my own issues. So at my age, at my stage in life, I really appreciate the people in my life. And yes, I consider you like family, even if I don't speak to you all the time. Sometimes I don't speak to my family all the time. Mm -hmm. And I always tell you, and I told you this, even after your heart attack, which we're going to get to later, that I'm always there for you. I'm a phone call away. Mm -hmm. You need to know that I'm a phone call away. If I'm not around or if we haven't spoken, doesn't mean anything. I'm always a phone call away. So yes, even though I do have this huge family that might be blood, I have a few friends of mine that I consider to be blood. Blood doesn't matter in this. It's the loyalty of the people that you love. And you're one of them. Well, that means a lot to me because I, I, you know, I know that you and I have invested so much time and energy into this friendship and I know that we've had our we've had our ups and we've had our downs and um and it was great because we just had uh dinner a couple of weeks ago and we hadn't seen each other uh for a long time and it was like and I knew it was going to happen this way I just knew it because this is the relationship that you and I have uh it was like I know we we're going to sit down you're going to order your whiskey I'm going to have a glass of wine and it just it was like no time had passed. And like, that's, that's what it's about, right? Yes, because when you want to be with someone and when you love someone, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. When you love someone, it just feels more natural. Yeah. So I want to go back again. I'm sorry I keep going back to your youth. We'll get past it in a second. Were you, people like to know, were you overweight at any point? No, I was never overweight. Uh, you know, like, and again, growing up in a different time. Like, Richie, I think back to the way that I grew up and it's like how you know, my hipster friends that live in upstate New York live now. You know, it's like this, it's very, uh, we grew our own vegetables. It was a cattle farm where our own meat came from. And, you know, we had chickens that that's where we got our, our eggs. And like, we never went to a grocery store. Like the only time we'd go to a grocery store, I remember it was like to get like, you know, 
milk and maybe bread. And that was a pretty much it. Cause like we, I mean, we never went to a fast food restaurant. We never went to a restaurant. I remember one time we went to a restaurant and I mean, I thought we were just like, I, I didn't know what was going on. And I thought it was like the most amazing thing in the entire world. But like, so when you grew up that way, when I grew up that way, I, I was always very active. The rule was you you come in when the sun goes down. Unlike today with kids and all their computer devices, and they they sit and like kids are so sedentary, and that's why that's why the weight the weight issues that kids are having right now is just heartbreaking for me because they just don't move like we did. So I was never overweight. I was always extremely active, and that was just a part of that was just that's how life was back then. So then when did the working out or the personal training really kick in for you? It really kicked in when I was living in Nashville and needing to figure out what I was going to be doing with my life. And uh, there was a gym near my uh, apartment and I ended up spending all my time there and I became I, I made friends with the owner. She took me under her wing. She taught me how to be a teacher. And it was something that I, uh, it really uh, resonated with me. And I decided if I was really gonna make a living out of this, I needed to move to, in what my mind was the fitness capital of the world, Los Angeles, California. And just decided one day, just like how I left Nashville that time, it was like, all right, I need to leave here. and. I had a Toyota, I think it was a Toyota Tercel. It was like this little car. Cause I'd never owned a car until I was 24. That's how, you know, that's how poor I was. Uh, and I had that car and I drove it all the way across country to Los Angeles, California, not knowing where I was gonna live, what I was going to do. I ha had very limited money. Uh, I was gonna ask, do you know how much money you had when you left? This is a guess, but it's got to be a strong guess. I mean, I think that it was around five. It was in that 500. Wow. wow. With nowhere Nothing. to live, with nowhere to live. And how old were you? I was uh, 24, 25. And you had no potential clients there. You, you weren't going for anyone. Girl, I had nothing. Okay. I, I had nothing. And uh, I, but I, I had my feelers out. Like before I left, there were these couple of fitness studios. And I remember driving into Cal uh, Los Angeles, California, this just shithole of a hotel that I found that I was just so afraid that I was either going to like, you know, I don't even know if we had bed bugs back then, but like, I just knew like it was disgusting, but like dropped off all my stuff. And that day I drove into um, one of the fitness studios. It was called the Martin Henry Fitness Studio. And I went in there and just made my presence known. I was like, I am here from Nashville. I contacted you guys. They gave me a job working the front desk. That's how I just started meeting people. And slowly but surely working that front desk and starting to teach classes. That's how I started building my my clientele for for uh, individual clients, my personal training career. I mean, that's when, like, because I was consistent and I was relentless about work. Nothing else mattered. Nothing, like, I didn't care about making friends. I didn't care about doing, doing anything other than making money. Okay, so now this is where it get, gets interesting because I kind of know that about you. When I was in LA and I took one of your classes, 
you were so professional and you were so on it. I mean, you had a class, I think of maybe 20 people. And I remember on the microphone, your back was towards me and I took the resistance and I made it lower. And I don't know if it's a coincidence, but you screamed on that microphone, Rich, raise the resistance. I got eyes. So I, wait a minute. So I pretended to do it. I didn't really raise it. I did it. He goes, and you said, raise it more. <laughs> I don't know if you knew I was lying. You just know your surroundings. You yeah. know what you're doing. I mean, it's incredible. It's really an art. I find that what you do is an art. Yeah, I uh, well, thank you for that. I, it means a lot to me because I I've always taken health and fitness very seriously. I, I, every class I would take, every class that I would teach, every person that was in my room, I made sure that I would make some sort of connection, and that's what made my classes so popular because I was never a drill sergeant. I was just this person that was very direct. I was going to help you in any way that I could as long as you met me halfway because I was in charge. And that's why people like you, very type A people in my career, they have always gravitated toward me because I'm also super type A. And when you meet someone that is also type A, you know that you can relinquish that. Like I know that I can be with you and I can relinquish control because like I, I trust you to have my back. And that's 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 how I started getting all these A-list celebrities because they knew that they were in good hands with me. Okay, so tell me, who were the first A-list celebrities that you had? I'm okay. curious. My my very first client, my very very first celebrity client was Katie Segal. Uh, she has a new show now. Yes, she does. Can't uh, wait to watch it. I have watched her career. I mean, she's she is so amazing, but it was Katie Segal and it was Jennifer Jason Lee. Those were those were my two. And then it just it just opened up. And that's when I started working with Ellen, as you know. Ellen, I remember, of course. And, and Melissa. And then it moved into Ben Stiller. It was Gwyneth Paltrow. Um and then like Madonna brought me in to start working with her husband, Guy Ritchie. And then the, um, the, the head of the Kabbalah. Yes. Um, I remember you telling me, I forgot Rob his name. Berg. Yes. Like, Rob Berg. The Rob Berg and his wife. Like, uh, I mean, so it was like, you start to get in that world and uh, it just. You and know, you gain, you know what it is? You gain, you know, Unfortunately and fortunately, you gain the respect of everyone around you by the people you're training. So like on one hand, it's a little sad that you have to train these celebrities in order to get the recognition for being such a good trainer. But fortunately, you got the recognition. I mean, I remember once walking into um, Fred Siegel with you and your phone rang. And I remember you just looked at it and put it in your pocket. Two seconds later, Ellen walks right up to you and goes, I'm trying to call you. Why aren't you answering the phone? I mean, these were the things I loved about you. You yeah. couldn't care less about anyone. You were with your friends and we were your priority at the moment. Yeah. We were there. And for anyone that has seen The Biggest Loser, they'll know what kind of a trainer and how much you care about the people that you train. So, okay, so you had these celebrities. Oh, another story with Gwyneth, which I love. We were on the beach in the Hamptons. We were with my friend Isaac and you get a telephone call and you get up and you leave. Anyway, you're gone for about 20, 30 minutes and you come back and, you know, nosy me. Who was that? Gwyneth Paltrow. I go, what's going on? 
you told me she wants me to train her, which I'll do, but she's on the macrobiotic diet and I just want to know everything I need to know about it. Anyway, we had a fun-filled weekend, so I don't know how you had time, but 24 hours later, you knew everything backwards and frontwards about the macrobiotic diet. That's how I've always been. Like, I'm going to learn everything. Like, I'm a sponge. Like, yes. And I know that you're a sponge too. Like, no, I'm not. I'm a sponge. You're a sponge. I need to know everything about every single diet, every single fitness plan, every single, you know, what, when it comes to fashion, you know me, like, you know, I'm a fashion queen. And it's like, I'm going to know everything about every design every. That, that means something to me. So it's like, that's how I've always been. And I always said that about you. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want people to also know, even when you were decorating your house in LA up on the hills, I won't give the address because I don't want people to stalk you. But <laughs> I remember, I mean, you researched every floor, every countertop. I mean, nothing was there by mistake or by just a decorator saying everything had to be approved and chosen by you after research. Well, uh, by the way, though, uh, I have to give all that credit, though, to Christy. Uh, my girl, Christy Conaway, the yep. like the best interior designer. She was the one. Like, talk about, like, relinquishing control. You and her have the same birthday. Um like she is the one that was just like, it is done this way. You're going to do this. And like, I, I loved it. I was like, yes, ma'am. It was easy for you. That yeah. was easy. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah. So the other funny story that I, I can't help, but always go back to is ironically uh, a few weeks or maybe a week later, we wound up hanging out with Gwyneth Paltrow and Hillary Swank with Melissa Etheridge. Do you remember that night? Girl, how do you I- not? I have talked about that night um, uh, many times. It's a great story and I'll, I'll paraphrase it really quickly. I remember at one point, I'm sitting here with Hillary Swank. She'd already won the Oscar. Gwyneth Paltrow on my <laughs> other side, already won the Oscar. I'm sitting here in between two, these two people and they're talking to me about you know the stories of what it was like. And like, I mean, just my mind blown. Like at one point you just kind of look around and go, is this my life right now? But like, as you say, like, I loved all the people that I've worked with and they're great, uh, but you, I've never taken it seriously. You know, it's like, it's all like, it's all fun and fodder, right? Like- I can vouch for that. You've never taken it seriously, never. <laughs> and you were so funny and a lot of the humor today would be deemed politically incorrect, but that's my kind of humor. But you're still funny, as hell. The jokes you made, I mean, when they were complaining about how life changed for them after they won their Oscars, me and you were like, boo-hoo, and I complained that my father died? Oh my goodness, I didn't know how rough they had it. I'm like, my father died when I was 10 and your dad kicked you out of the house at 17? These poor girls, what are we complaining about? So yeah, it was just so funny. I mean, we really had a great time. One of the funniest things that I remember from you is when we first had our kids, you were not living in LA yet. You were there staying at the Mercer Hotel and the Oscars was on. And apparently LA people make a huge deal about the Oscars. Yes. Okay. We don't. I know. So you told me we are coming to your house. We need to watch the Oscars. In any case, we did. We watched the Oscars while the monitor for the kids was right in front of us. And of course, you heard crying as it starts. You literally, <laughs> so funny. What you did was you picked up the remote without even having knowing how to use it, 
and you found the pause button, you paused it and you looked at me and you said, do they not know this is the Oscars? I remember cracking up. See, that's the thing. I get you and you get me. We get each other. Yeah. yeah and that's, I think, the big thing in our relationship is we get each other. Yeah, I remember that. I, and I hate being in New York on Oscar night, on Golden Globe night. Those, those things like are very, very important days in Los Angeles and nobody cares in New York. I'm just no, like, but I, I remember being at your house and uh, it was a huge party. People were betting money on it. It was uh, like a casino at your house. That's exactly I mean, I don't know. Right. Me we and Brad care. almost lost a townhouse yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I take it very seriously. Like I used to, I have this one friend, Brian, uh, he and I have been friends for, gosh, I don't know, 30 years. But every morning in Los Angeles, we would get up at like five o'clock to get in front of a television, no matter, we used to be roommates, but even when we weren't, we'd call each other up at five o'clock on Oscar morning and talk about like, who's getting, you know, who the nominations are. And uh, because it was five o'clock Pacific time, eight o'clock uh, Eastern time. So yeah, those things were are, are, have always been very serious to me. Okay, can you please tell the story of you during, was it, it was one of the awards and you were walking the what is it the red carpet and who is the girl with the swan dress uh, girl uh i was, <laughs> was at, that, that was one of my favorite stories please I tell am it. At the vanity fair, fair party like <laughs> that is like the party to go to i've only been once uh-huh. uh and it was the night it was the night that julia roberts won her oscar and she is in that Fabulous. I'm blanking in my mm-hmm. Valentino. Was it the black and white Valentino? Yes. She's in that Valentino dress. And um, she came up to me because she used to take my class all the time. And here she is on her night, Oscar night. She comes up and she hugs me. And as she's, I remember her hugging me and her, her Oscars like hitting my butt. <laughs> and, and she's like, you always said, uh, you said something to me that I've never forgotten. And um, I'm going to tell you exactly what it was. And I was like, okay. And I'm with Melissa at the time. And Melissa's jaws on the floor because she's like, who are you? Uh, And Julie looks at me and she's like, you always said, if I can't touch my own ass, whose ass can I touch? And when I would do these classes and I was like, well, that sounds like me. But um, so as we're finally leaving, we're leaving the Vanity Fair party, Bjork, comes walking, and I'm a huge, huge Bjork fan. She comes in and she's got that swan that swan dress with those hose that were like hanging down, like so ill-fitting. And I I died. And like, you know, and I had had a few drinks. And I was just like, oh my God, Bjork, I love you so much. She looked at me like I was going to kill her. And she just like scurried away. And I was like, I just got, sh- I just got shunned by Bjork. Now I can die. <laughs> she, you told me she looked at you like you were wearing that yeah, outfit. She, was, she looked at me like I was wearing the swan around my neck. <laughs> like you were the crazy one. Yeah. I love that story. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for part two with Bob Harper. You're going to find out how Bob landed the job as one of the trainers for The Biggest Loser. It wasn't easy, and he's going to tell us why, and why they won't have him back on The Morning Show with Kelly Ripa and Ryan Seacrest. And the rumors about him and Andy Cohen? Well, we'll find out. 
He also talks candidly about how his life came crashing down when he had his massive heart attack that left him dead for nine seconds. I remember that day. It was a wake-up call. He's going to tell us the signs leading up to his heart attack that, frankly, we can all learn from. All of this and more next week on Rich in Life. You've been listening to Rich in Life with Rich Arani. If you liked what you've heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Or visit us at richinlife.com. That's R-I-T-C-H in life.com.